Today's podcast is a sneak peek at the new plans for the Museum of Food and Drink in New York with its new director, Nasli Parvizi. Just a reminder to leave a comment and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast. And email me if you like. I love hearing from you. Now, here's Nasli Parvizi. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Nasli Parvizi joins us today. She is the new president of the Museum of Food and Drink. Welcome, Nasli. Hello. So nice to see you. So tell me, when did you become the new president of MOFAD? officially in January of this year of 2021. And so what have you planned? What is going on right now in the sort of this kind of phase out of COVID restrictions, I'm hoping? Because I currently live in California. I'm from New York. The museum's in New York. And it's a it's a very funny period because I think we are much have been much more closed off um, and remain much more closed in other parts of the country. But I think, you know, I come to any nonprofit job, certainly a nonprofit cultural institution at a very strange time. <laughs> I think a lot of folks would not have recommended it, but it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Mm-hmm. So the planning for us is short term because I was lucky enough to inherit an exhibition that was supposed to open over a year ago, and obviously did not. So the short-term goal is to get that exhibition open. And then the longer-term goal is we gave up our space as a result of COVID. So we would like another space. Even longer term than that, we would like a more permanent footprint. And we'd love to travel the exhibition, which you and I have spoken about, Liz. It's an exhibition that I think is really special and deserves to be seen by the world. And it comes at a at a moment in time when I think finally folks are incredibly interested in these stories being told. So our exhibition is called African-American Making of the Nation's Table. And it's a 400 year sort of survey of the contributions of African-Americans to America's culinary landscape from food, agriculture, distilling, innovation, et cetera. It's wide sweeping. And if you're not in a permanent location, where is this exhibition going to open? So we're really lucky because the exhibition was never going to be at our lab space. The exhibition is being presented at the Africa Center, which is one of New York City's newer and very exciting cultural centers. It's been in the works, in the plans for at least a decade, I think even longer. And our exhibition is actually going to be their first exhibition. It kind of marks the opening of the Africa Center, which is super exciting. How much space does it take up? The Not the Africa Center, but the yes. space. Yes, the Africa Center is much bigger than the exhibition. We are uh, we're at uh, Alagoti Hall, and that particular space of theirs is about 5,000 square feet, five to 6,000 square feet. So 
how you know how has this exhibit kind of begun how what what is the focus of the exhibit i mean 400 years is a rather a lot broad, oh uh, yeah broad exhibit so how are you focusing yeah. it and organizing it right so obviously i think like most museums or like most uh we're at the tip of the iceberg mm -hmm. um and so this is really an opportunity to get people curious uh to get them to get folks understanding just how the, the depth and breadth of African-American contributions, and then to go get them to explore more and more stories after they leave our exhibition. But you're right, it's, it's a massive sort of undertaking. So when we thought about how to actually present it, we actually went with a somewhat less chronological approach and went around themes. So each section presents a theme um, one is migrations, so the story from Africa to America, mostly the American South, during the period of enslavement, and then post-enslavement, sort of the migration north and that phenomenon and what that meant. So from the bringing of food cultures and ingredients and expertise from Africa to America, and then taking what was sort of created with all of those assets and then the sort of work of enslaved people, um, on plantations, in kitchens, as and then following that as servants. And then as the migration moved north following civil war, kind of how those traditions are mixed with food cultures in other parts of the country. So migrations is one big theme. Distilling is another. Again, I think that a lot of people are again increasingly familiar with the idea of sort of soul food and Southern food. Although our big argument is that it's not just soul food and Southern food. I think that's actually kind of one of the more common it's certainly one of the most delicious and it deserves to be, you know, kind of famously celebrated. But uh, I think a less known story certainly is distilling beer, wine, alcohol. You know, one of our stories focuses on nearest green uh, who taught Jack Daniels how to brew whiskey um, and whose descendants still work at the Jack Daniels distillery. He's, you know, a member of his family has been one of the master distillery distillers for generations now. So again, there's stories like that. One is commerce and trade. So again, the kind of businesses that came out of uh, out of this world, innovations. Again, I think that, and I will say that was the part of the exhibition I was least familiar with and sort of learned the most from was just the incredible amount of innovations and patents and inventions that African-Americans were responsible for, including, you know, cold chain storage that allowed the modern supermarket to flourish down to the ice cream scoop, you know, that sort of, the, the one that you sort of, the one I ever, I don't know, I think everyone uses uh, the cookie scoop, the ice cream scoop, and then there's food and then there's agriculture, sort of the cooking, of course, and then the farming practices, the incredible rich history of farming practices that have gotten, um, yeah, <laughs> have taught so many generations of people how to actually farm the land in this country because of the expertise of African-Americans. And again, the farming practices they were able to bring out of the uh, out of Africa that despite enslavement and the horror of it, um, that many were able to retain and sort of pass on generationally. And yeah, it's, as I said, it's wide sweeping, but we went with a more, uh, we decided to go with a more general sweep rather than in-depth look at one. Um, because we meant it to be sort of wide sweeping. We want to be more of a survey. And then the beauty of it with the ability through our programming to kind of dive deep. Um, that's what's kind of exciting. And that's been sort of the silver lining as well with the cancellation of the world in general is we sort of pivoted and started doing online programming. And 
have picked up on the themes of African-American, did six programs during Black History Month, but basically every four to six weeks have done a program featuring a theme from the exhibition. And it is these modern deep dives. Sometimes we look back on the history, sometimes we bring it to modern day practitioners, but it's been really wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, it's been really wonderful to kind of take a deeper dive into the, into the themes of the exhibition. So do you think that once the exhibition opens, that you'll continue um, some of the programming in person at the Africa Center? Or do you think everything will remain online? No, we'll definitely do some of the programming in person. I think that people are hungry for it. And I think, I think there's something special in being able to do programming in the midst of the exhibition. But at the same time, and I don't know if this is something uh, you struggle with Liz or you've gotten feedback. Um, we've had audiences now from around the country and really internationally. And as much as everyone says they're exhausted by Zoom, we also get really great feedback that says, we wouldn't have access to this content if y'all didn't do this virtually. And frankly, I think it's a difference when it's a format like you and I sort of looking at each other through Zoom versus having a camcorder at a live event. Sure. Um, you know, it's just a different, it's literally a different quality of film and sound and audio and all that. So it's been, you know, I love what you said. You're the Southern Museum of Food and Beverage. If you eat it in the South, it's Southern food. Mm -hmm. I love that because I've always said that, you know, I always say we're, we're, we look at American food. We, we're, we're not just American food. I think we try to have a, a sort of a worldwide lens. But when people say, what's American food? It's the food you eat in America, which means it's all the food in the world, right? That's right. <laughs> so, you, so you and I have the exact same. And when I had a catering company, I would say, what do you cook? American food. What's that? Everything. Um, <laughs> so I know that you and I have very similar philosophies to this. Um, I, we are in New York City. I think it is a very interesting time for museums as they think about their, their reach and their audiences and their roles, right? Um, generally speaking, but then even within this period of recovery, um, to be sort of closed off from culture for a year and a half, at least from physical spaces of culture, right, um, is is a hardship. I mean, that's I, I don't know how else to say. It. It's a hardship, and to me, being closed off from culture is as much being closed off from a museum as it is being closed off from some of my favorite restaurants, because that's how I like to take in culture. We're mm -hmm. food people. Right. Um, we, I imbibe my culture. I ingest my culture. <laughs> Sometimes I even digest my culture. It's yeah. So I think that it, it's really given us some food for thought about how to move forward. I think that once a month, once every six weeks, I think it's really, we may still do the zoom format. It also allows people to experience things in a much more transformative way. I mean, you know, one of our more popular programs I said, I love telling an American story, but our most popular programs have been these sort of deep dive tours of Marseille and Mexico City's Tomorrow. And, you know, with a wonderful tour company that does this, usually does this in person, Culinary Backstreets, and worked with us to pivot it to virtual programming. And honestly, for the majority of people in this country, they may never be able to afford to go to Marseille or to Mexico. Right. right. And so this is, this is the deep dive, you know, in the same way that I've sort of been, I'm a reader because it lets me experience a life. And especially when my life was very small, it really opened up worlds to me that I never knew existed. And, you know, virtual programming for better, for worse, as annoying as it all was, allowed us to sit in our homes and be transported. 
so as I said, I take it all as a, it's not all bad. We're sick of it. We're all excited that the weather's getting better, the restaurants, the world's opening up, but you know, there's something really cool about actually seeing a father and son at a cinnamon farm in Vietnam who were, uh, who joined us for and, a spice it, program. It's really interesting. I, I used to say this about Mardi Gras. I live in New Orleans, so yep. we experience Mardi Gras all the time. And so at some point it's like, okay, Mardi Gras again, you know, and so <laughs> stay home for Mardi Gras. And it's yeah. like, and, you know, I was never a snow bunny who left for Mardi Gras and went sure. to Colorado to ski or something. But to me, you it was like, okay, out. the world stops here at Mardi Gras. So you could get, you could catch up with everything. You could do all this work that Absolutely. you had just, you know, this list and check the boxes one after yep. another. And when Mardi Gras was over, you were like, all right, I'm ready again for it to <laughs> turn into chaos all over again. All over but again. <laughs> you just had these couple of days where you could actually put things together <laughs> without interruption or anything like that. And I feel like in some ways that COVID was just an extended version of that. It's like the world yes. stopped for a period yeah. of time. And so, yes, you had to adapt, you had to change yeah. or whatever, but many of those things that you began to do were yeah. things that maybe were on your to-do list for yeah. three months or eight months down the pike or two years down the pike or whatever. Totally. And now you do them and you've perfected them. And so some of those things are gonna be incorporated even after we return to what we used to call normal life. <laughs> yeah, which I think we all hope, going back to what was the world a year and a half ago to me is not the right answer. I think there's lessons learned. And you're right. And I would say taking this job was something, was part of that decision of really choosing joy. Yeah. You know, sadly, we'll see when the world does open up how, how joyful it is to take a massive pay cut, um, take a massive pay cut and work in a nonprofit. And, you know, the fundraising is never exciting, but it was a very conscious decision. I'm with you, uh, certainly as a New Yorker, but I think generally speaking for working people, especially working people with kids, um, life is a treadmill, right? And so it was a much needed opportunity. And I say that with all the privilege of somebody who could stop. I was not, I'm not an essential worker. I didn't still have to go out into the world in order to right. make a living. Uh, for me, as I said, I generally had a four and a half hour commute up to Sacramento um, for my other job that I did at least three times a week. So not having to do that commute, uh, being able to spend more time with my kid, uh, and I will say, as one of the very few parents, I think, whose kid has been in school basically full-time, other than mm -hmm. during the fires, which is all the difference, all the difference between me and every single other person I know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting year. There's been some wonderful parts. There's heartbreaking parts. But there's certainly an idea that we shouldn't go back to what was there before, certainly for women, right? Mm -hmm. I, I will say this, like, I think women have made the biggest sacrifice over this last year in terms of their work um, because of the said, uh, the issue with children and their educations. Um, at the same time, I think we've proven over and over ad nauseum that you can work from home, mm -hmm. that a flexible work day is possible. Um, and all these other things that people threw in our faces to say, this is why you can't do your job this way. Mm -hmm. When everyone else had to do it and all seemed to keep working, you know, there's been a serious reassessment. So. And I think about that, especially in terms of running a nonprofit, where again, 
we don't pay people nearly as much as they deserve. And so in terms of thinking about, well, what can I work on with respect to the quality of life of my staff and my team that can make it worth it to do these jobs for the sort of paltry amounts that we, when I include myself in this, that we're all doing it for. Right. So I think that's been something to really think about and assess as well. So what, speaking of nonprofits that you're leading yes. now, um, what, um, what kinds of visions, obviously we have this, this current exhibit that we're hoping is open sometime this year, right? Yep. At, at yep. the Africa Center. And then um, what other kinds of things do you hope for? You, you spoke a little bit about a permanent location. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then uh, what, what is your vision? What is your, um, your hope for the, the growth of the Museum of Food and Drink? Sure. Um, it's, it's a talk, talk in progress, first of all. So I'll think out loud with you. I think a few things. I think that there's always been a vision to have a larger permanent footprint. I think that one of the hardest things about the museum um, since we started, uh, and we're a very new institution, um, less than, we were in our last space for I believe about seven years. So pretty new, um, toddler age, I don't know, in nonprofit years. Um, The, there's always been the vision of having a permanent footprint that would allow us to have more than one exhibition, which I think is really important. Um, I think that just allows different folks to engage on different levels based on whether or not they're interested in sort of food history versus food science versus kids programming. Um, And so a larger space would do that. My vision is that within three to five years that we have a larger footprint. Um, My more immediate vision is to have a space um, that is 4,000 square feet rather than let's say the sort of 10 to 20,000 square feet that we would love to have. That would let us do a series of mini exhibitions. I think the other thing that's been really interesting this year as a result of certainly all the kind of political and social justice and uh, turmoil, um, well, social justice hasn't been turmoil, it's been the result of all the uh, political turmoil. Um, It's been, museums are often unable to be responsive to the world outside because of the exhibition schedule, because you know they're, they're sort of armadas versus pirate ships, right? It takes a long time to turn a ship around when you're planning for paintings from five years ago and blah, blah, blah. And you know, as I said, I've mentioned this to you before, we sort of said, and I debated taking it off our mission statement, but we said, we're a new kind of museum. And I sort of keep challenging um, my staff and my board with that question to say, well, how are we new? Is it just because we're food? You guys have been around, people have been doing food stuff. That doesn't make us new. So it's really thinking about, well, what makes us a new kind of museum? I like the idea of us being able to pivot in a way to kind of reflect the world around us. I'm really proud of the fact and happy about the fact that we sort of felt the telling of the African-American story was one that hadn't sort of been told in a wide sweeping way um, and should be. Uh, and then our timing was quite excellent because as I said, I think as a result of the movement for black lives and some of the, um, the politics in the world over the past few years, people are excited and sort of curious and want to, or, and take it upon themselves now to dive, to dive deeper into these stories, regardless of whether or not their, their background is uh, African-American. Um, I generally always want to tell 
part of the American story, right? That's kind of my, I'm, I was a food anthropologist, you know, to me, there's three sources of American food. There's indigenous, there's enslaved, and there's immigrant. Um, and there's millions of stories within those three categories, right? Nice. So I think in our smaller space, while we sort of plan for the larger footprint, um, I love the idea of doing one to two sort of mini exhibitions and being able to rotate them faster, um, being able to kind of do a couple thousand square feet or two exhibitions up to 3000 square feet sort of every six months and to be able to sort of flip them in. And maybe that's not so fast, but I think compared to other museums, it's it can be. And then I really like, I think that people really respond to our programming. I think people like our programming and I think it really helps define us. And so I think our programming is a really interesting way of, again, taking themes when we're limited by space and bringing them to life in other ways. And because we're a food museum, that often means ways that involve eating and drinking, eating. <laughs> which, which is always wonderful, right? right, right. So I think that's part of it. Um, and then I think it's funny, the part that I'm is least interesting to me, um, but I think is most interesting to our audience or, or a part of our audience is much more robust kids programming. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a new space that we're looking at, uh, the landlord said, oh, this place is filled with kids all day long, um, which is a very typical New York story, right? People are, especially kids with younger kids, they've got their nannies, they don't wanna be stuck in that apartment all day. And I think uh, this new location is kind of surrounded by buildings. So that's been kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, as I said, I'm not sort of a, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, I like the idea of educating older folks and sort of school-aged folks, but it's, that said, you got to understand your audience. So we'll see what that looks like as well. And so, that, yeah. No, I was just going to share some of the things that we've experienced and what we've Great. seen happen. Um, we started, um, in the beginning, feeling so daunted by the idea of having to find a permanent space. I mean, we wanted to, it wasn't that we didn't want to, but it just seemed like, when is this ever going to be possible? Because we started from zero, you know, and uh, it became a, a thing where we started to have exhibits in borrowed spaces, which now, of course, people call pop-ups, but at the time there was no name for it. <laughs> so we called it exhibits in, um, exhibits in, in borrowed space. And when we did that, we really started to question what is a museum and do you have to have bricks and mortars in order to be a museum? So that was a, something that we really, we really considered for a while. And then um, once we, we have had a space, um, the other thing that I think is really, uh, interesting about it is, of course, it's never big enough. Um, you, the, the minute you have a space, uh, yeah, this, the minute you have a space, the, the, that's when there's no, um, there's no more because you've, you've filled it up. And uh, it's interesting to try to figure out then how to have exhibits that actually are engaging and as well as educational and you want them to be entertaining and whatever, right. but yeah. also um, you have to find artifacts. And one of the things about food and drink is that almost everything is um, 
it, <laughs> well, it's it's trash. You know, it's canned, yeah. it's packaging, it's yeah. something that's the food is actually, you know, is you you've taken it into your body, so it's gone, and um, and so to find those things is often very very difficult, and so you don't want to just have a flat exhibit. Even even photographs and drawings and other kinds of diagrams are flat. And so you want to have something that's three-dimensional um, just for the visual excitement of the three dimensions. It's kind of difficult. Um, and so I, I'm, I think um, it's the kind of thing that is always a challenge in this particular field. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's funny, the, the sort of amount of money that we pay for menus that are over 50 years old. Um, and by and by standards of uh by standards of artifacts they're still pretty cheap compared to sort of again right. art collection but um yeah and we're also at a time when again we say what are your plans long term accessibility is a challenge for every cultural institution um i would say and you know having seen your museum only virtually liz but i don't think people are as intimidated about walking into our spaces as they might be by these sort of cathedrals set up okay. to show art. Right. Um, and it depends on who you are. Some people that feels like home and other people think what's in there is not for me. Part of it is that physical structure. Part of it is the contents. Like if you don't see yourself reflected back. Um, and so I appreciate that again, as a new organization, there's a lot of baggage we don't carry and a lot of legacy we don't have to sort of overturn, which is great. And at the same time, we have an obligation to audience like everybody else. Um, you know, our goal is to is to kind of educate, uh, provoke thought in as many people as possible. And what does that mean in terms of access and audience? And how in this ever-changing world, do you think about digitizing a permanent collection? Like, do I want to be paying for storage for the rest of my life? You know, I think about the, you know, the Marie Kondo thing where everybody decided like what sparked joy and what didn't, which, yes. you know, it turns out lots of things spark joy for me. So it doesn't really work well for me, but um, as a museum, you can't sort of look at a menu and say, does it spark joy and get rid of it? At the same time, it's, it's a little bit heartbreaking that the majority of museums only show what 15 to 30% of their permanent collections, maybe. That's true, but you also know that they're there. And if you're a yeah. scholar and you're studying, I mean, yes. you know, if you have yeah. multiple roles, one is to engage the public, totally. you're open to the public. And so you have that role, but then yep. if you are collecting and not everybody yes. does collect, but if you do collect, yeah. you know, the difference, this is, this is my example, I give it over and over again, but if you are reading in someone's journal that yep. it was hot, and heavy to pick up the cast iron cauldron full of boiling liquid, leaning over the, the hearth to put it on the hook. And you're sort of off balance because you've got this thing in your arms and, and it splashes and burns you and whatever. Okay, that sounds awful, but it's just a concept, okay? But if you have a cast iron cauldron full yes. of liquid, even if it is not boiling and you pick it up and you physically experience what it's like to pick it up, it means something totally it different. Does. And it you really know, one of, one of the things that, that seeing 
changes is that we, we have just seen this in the Black Lives Matter movement over and over again, yeah. that when you see what happened, as opposed yes. to just hear about what happened, it mm -hmm. means something else because the abstraction is just an abstraction, but yep. actually seeing it through your senses of the yep. sight, you experience it. It is mm -hmm. not just an abstraction anymore. And that to me is what artifacts do. They give That's you right. the opportunity to experience and it supplements that abstraction yeah. in the journal or whatever, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And you bring up a great point and sort of a counterpoint. And again, going back to why do we do it through food? Oftentimes eating, eating a dish off a menu, eating an ingredient while someone tells you the background of it, it's just such a different way. I mean, I spent my whole life, you know, I've had a subscription to gourmet magazine since I was in third grade. Um, but growing up in central Massachusetts, I was never going to these fancy restaurants in New York or LA. They were always writing about it was, I have a good imagination. It was incredible to read about those things, but until I was eating them, oh yes. Um, yes, it's just a totally different thing. No, and you really bring up a great point. I mean, I think the nice thing is, uh, as we sort of figure out what does a permanent collection look like for us or not, there's also just the incredible ability to collaborate. Um, you know, I was talking to the Studio Museum of Harlem, who are without space for, I think, another three years as they renovate and my gosh, triple at least their museum space. Mm -hmm. And they've got these wonderful, and you know, is it, do you shut down for three years? Well, no, they've got the Studio Museum at MoMA, the Studio Museum at the Met. They're, they've mm -hmm. got all of these great collaborations, which is also why it's so nice to meet you as well. One of the things you said is, look, we want the books. We're collecting the books. You got mm -hmm. books, you don't want books, send them to us. I think that the spirit of sort of collaboration and camaraderie amongst institutions is really key. Um, I don't know if it's always been this way. I hope, hopefully it has. I think within the arts, the arts tend to be a collaborative right. world. Mm -hmm. um, and same with nonprofits, even though we're all sort of competing for that tiny, tiny wedge of funding. Um, at the same time, you really need each other to kind of make things work. So part of it uh, that kind of takes away the angst, I think, as we make these decisions is, here's what we think might be important for us to have. Here's what might be important to have in New York City, because maybe there's nothing else like it for however many hundred miles. And here's what we just think is important to be around in this country. And where could it go if we can't hold it? Who can? It becomes um, the, the country becomes a distributed museum. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is ultimately what I want. I mean, as you said, it's a sort of idea of pop ups. Um, people. I, we want, I want to be part of the recovery of New York as much as you want to be part of the recovery of New Orleans. We want people to come to New York. And again, at the same time, there are people who will not, will not be able to afford to do that. And, but I still want them to hear the stories that we have to tell. So, you know, is it, do you bring the mountain to Muhammad? Do, do we go places? Do we do that through our programming? Do we do it through curricula, you know? I think those are all, these are all sort of exciting questions to be asking. Okay, I think we're gonna have to, I've turned off my phone, <laughs> but because it's so close to the computer, it's ringing it anyway. Is. Ah. So <laughs> the we'll dulcet tone. this out, yes. Okay. <laughs> all right, I'm sorry, would you wanna say that again? That'll be good. Sure, no, I was just saying, I think that it's, there's a series of questions to ask and I think it's exciting to be able to ask them, which is, you know, do you sort of bring the mountain to Muhammad in terms of 
do you bring your exhibitions or even sort of your sort of idea, the concept of a museum to other places? Um, you know, can you sort of create exhibitions that can be sort of popped up quickly that can be manufactured or fabricated on site in different cities? Um, do you think about how to kind of spread your point of view through curricula, partnerships or things like that? Obviously ex exhibitions can travel, um, but these are all questions that I think we're all asking ourselves and it's exciting to ask. Um, obviously the answer could be you do all of them in a world where there's unlimited funding, but that's never been the case of anybody I know. <laughs> so, you know, how yes. do you prioritize is the that other one. Is our, that's our opium dream, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, or maybe, maybe it's our marijuana edible dream. Uh -huh. Well, as I told you, having done a sleep study last night and been exposed to the wonders of Ambien, it's my <laughs> Ambien non-dream, I guess. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for your time so that we could have this conversation. Tell us how we can learn more about MOFAD. It's been lovely chatting with you. Um, visit us at www.mofad.org. Um, it's the portal to all the things that we offer. Um, but of course, it's 2021. So Instagram, of course, will of course. get you Mo MoFad at MoFad is our handle, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, and yeah, everyone, please join us for a program. They're fun. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take good care. Be well. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.